This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. And may God write it on our hearts. Yeah, amen. Not in my introduction here, but can I just say with you, I hope you agree, God, our God is powerful and personal. What we've sang about, what we've seen already, it's like, can God get any bigger? And I hope you will see here in the conclusion of Obadiah, he indeed, he can. He is, guys. We conclude our study of Obadiah today. In the past three weeks, we have sought together to understand the vision of Obadiah as it is given. We've tried to look at the vengeance of Yahweh in the first part of this prophecy. Last week, we talked about the violence of Edom. And today, we conclude by looking at the victory, the victory of the Lord, the victory of Yahweh at the end of this prophetic oracle. That's what this prophecy is. It's an oracle, a prophetic word Obadiah gave against Edom. You notice, I hope, as we've sang about them, as we've prayed them, and as we've now read them and hope to preach them, this passage is full of promise. Promises. Promises abound in the end of this book. But I want to ask you this morning, what makes something a promise? What makes something a promise? Let's go to some contemporary sources. In the court of law today, a promise is defined like this, quote, a firm agreement to perform an act or to refrain from acting or make a payment or a delivery. And in our courts today, a failure to fulfill a promise that's in a contract is a breach of that contract for which the other party may sue to have, you know, for, por- for, uh, for performance and or damages. That's the way the court of law today thinks about promises. In the common man's definition, stepping down from our courts, just the way Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines it, a promise definition is, number one, a declaration that one will do or refrain from doing something specific. And then number two, a little bit more nuance here, our culture thinks that when something's promised, that reason, uh, it it is reason to expect something. Reason to expect something. That's the law's. That's the common man. Let's step into the school playground. You know what it is? It's a pinky promise. No crosses count, right? It cross your heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in your eye, which is pretty serious, right? And sources say that this is as severe to not doing a double dog dare. Pretty serious stuff, right? When we promise. What about world religion? You know, the heretical teachings of one world religion called Islam It reserves some of its most violent language for the sin of promise breaking. In the Quran, it states this, quote, Surely the vilest of animals in Allah's sight are those with whom you make an agreement, then they break their agreement every time, and they do not guard against punishment, end quote. One Muslim commentator adds his thoughts to this verse. He says, quote, Thus those who do not fulfill their promises are the worst of creatures. They are worse than animals. World religions generally go this direction. They condemn promise breaking. And yet, we will believe as Christians that all of them, like Islam and any other uh, you know, world religion that is not Christianity, they promise peace, they promise status, they promise eternal gifts. We know they are not true. These world religions are guilty of breaking their own views concerning promises. Okay, what about us personally? Each one of you know today that you're no different, any of us in failing to keep your own promises. 
Do we not? We make promises that we fail all the time. So what do we do? With all this confusion surrounding the idea of promise, it's no wonder then that I, I think that churches today are often filled with believers who struggle to understand, maybe even identify, right? Identify, understand, believe, and then walk in obedience to the promises of God. With all the confusion about promises, believers today maybe struggle, maybe you struggle, to understand, believe, and walk in obedience to God's promises. We preach today, and I hope, the hope of changing that here. You've seen today's views. I just told you, today's laws, cultural consensuses, childish conclusions, and one-world religion's understanding of promise-keeping and promise-breaking. Today we ask the question, what does the Word of God say concerning promises? Our God, that we've tried to behold to you, hold out to you in song, in singing, in prayer. Our God, the one true God, is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. That's where you say amen, church. I'm going to repeat it, give you another chance. Our God, the one true God, is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. Amen? Amen. He's the anchor, the anchor that keeps his promise. Now, that God, the God Yahweh, is revealed to us by Obadiah. And in this way, God being a promise maker and a promise keeper, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do are certain. He is the, uh, this way, a promise keeper, maker and keeper in all judgment, okay, against the wicked and in, against the preservation of the righteous. He is this God. In our text, God promises. And he promises two main things. Each one will have a sub point. So if you're taking notes, this is your outline, and you should take notes. Point number one is going to be this. God promises judgment for wicked sinners. God promises judgment for wicked sinners. And underneath that, we will deal with, in conclusion, the reckoning for evil Esau. All right? In this sermon, I hope, secondly, to see that God's promise, God promises justice for wayward sinners. Or excuse me, wayward saints. Justice for wayward saints. And in that, we'll see that there is a restoration for justified Jacob. So without the subpoints, this is the main point of today. God promises judgment for wicked sinners and justice for wayward saints. That's where we're going. Let's talk about this first one. God's promise of judgment for wicked sinners. If you've missed previous weeks in Obadiah, that's okay. Because it is a short message given by the prophet Obadiah, who we know nothing about, which is rare in our studying the Bible, besides what we have here. What we have in this oracle is what we know about Obadiah. The message that he gave is a judgment oracle. You've heard me say that. Oracle is a prophecy. This is a judgment prophecy against the nation of Edom. Edom is called Esau as well in this book. We've learned in previous weeks that Edom did horrible violence as a nation against another people in this letter, the chosen people of God called Jacob, Judah, or Israel. And this evil nation, Edom, has done violence against Jacob, Judah, and Israel throughout this prophecy. And they are a sinfully proud people. God, in this work, is judging Edom for their great wickedness. Obadiah is 
writing about the events of 586 BC. We can actually study it. When God was judging his people Israel, okay, not Edom, when he was judging Israel for their rampant idolatry by allowing the powerful nation of Babylon to conquer the great city of David, Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, and not only to conquer them with war, burning and pillaging Jerusalem and carrying people away, but taking them captive into a captivity, okay? When that happened, we've learned that Edom, Esau, the brother nation, the one who, like a good brother, was supposed to have the back of Judah, was supposed to have the back of Jacob, stood aloof. Not only did they stood aloof, but we know last week, what did we study? They partook in this horrible violence against God's chosen people. We concluded in verse 15 last week where we will start today because Obadiah um, gave hope and strange peace to the people of Israel, okay, by verse 15, by calling their attention to the great day of judgment. And he did that, uh, you know, accounting for what has been, what had been talked about, which we're not preaching today. But now 15 is a hinge pinge in this, in this prophecy, okay? The, the whole argument of the book really swings on verse 15 on either, either, either way. So that's where we've, gone, where we've been. And listen, friend, if you're here and you haven't, like, you struggle today to connect how these promises matter so much in life, I would encourage you, go back, find our podcast, and listen to these two sermons. And you'll see that for three weeks now, we've tried to set up this swing. But as we turn now from the, the response in 15 of the day of the Lord, and now we apply it to the promises of God, what we start with is still similar to what we've seen. Promised judgment for wicked sinners. Okay, remember that even though the single nation of Edom has been in view, God intentionally switched to the plural in what you heard our brother read to you this morning. Look at it again, verse 15. The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done all the nations, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Do you hear this? So after pointing out the appropriate measure that everyone deserves, eye for eye, evil deed, return for evil deed, the language of God now will adopt some specific metaphors and images in verses 16 and 18 that we need to understand, to study, and to preach concerning our first point today. I want you to see them. God's judgment against wicked sinners is serious, and we're about to see it's graphic, and it is filled with future promised violence done by God himself on sinners. Now, when I say that, I know the weight. And I think that, if you'll let me, we need to deal with an elephant in the room. I think going here first will help us to understand the severity of judgment that is reserved for the wicked. Now, it's common to enter churches today. In, in our current moment, and to hear of the surpassing goodness and love of God, which is not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing. We preach love. But it is really sad to say that it is rare to hear in sermons today of the overwhelming wrath of God's hatred God's hatred for and his righteous judgment of sinful men and women who reject him. It's rare, and that's a problem. I think we need to deal with it if we're going to understand Obadiah. 
Here's why. The, the elimination of or the slow ignoring of the purposeful, clearly disclosed wrath of our holy, holy God. Holy, holy, holy God. Okay, the, the, the elimination or the slowly ignoring of that, it has left Christians weak and incapable of defending the faith. It has left many Christians unequipped by allowing them to claim to know God personally, but never communing with him in the word on this kind of level in the books of Obadiah. What's happened, how ironic that we have an Instagram saints culture today, pervasive in pulpits, that's versed in saying God's saving love by using God's word to say that, while picking and choosing and simultaneously at times ignoring the, the, the mass amount of scriptures that deal with God's hatred of sin and judgment. Without understanding here of God's wrath and his love together, we are like an anemic person. We're like, we're like an anemic person as a body. We will tire and weaken quickly. When you have anemia, you got to know at first, anemia can be so mild that you don't notice it. But over time, symptoms worsen as anemia worsens. So our churches worsen as they weaken themselves. This is an issue. If churches are propagated on the I'll say the cheap preaching of grace and love that doesn't remove the wrath of God. Grace and love that doesn't remove the wrath of God. If we live on that diet, we are like an anemic person. We are weak and defenseless and we struggle to understand. I'll say it like this. Like an anemic needs iron in the blood, we need God's justice to apply the blood of Christ. Let me say that again. Like an anemic needs iron in the blood, we need God's justice to apply the blood of Christ. Do you see how it strikes at the heart of atonement? Now, many used to fear this. There was a fear in our churches as you study it historically, and I, you read it, you've heard this. There's a fear of only being obsessed with the wrath of God. It gets caricatured as what? Fire and brimstone. Fire and brimstone preaching is a thing of the past. But the overreaction to to fire and brimstone preaching, which is an unhealthy balance as well, is where we're currently at. And the Israelites and the Edomites, like, like many Christian peoples today, they had reinvented and imagined God to be something he was not. And when we pick up Obadiah, we are inheriting what happened in Israel for Babylon to be raised up by God to discipline them and get them, their eyes on him as holy. And as Edom, as a judged wicked people, to realize the severity of God's wrath as it is poured out on the wicked. And we enter into that moment. You know why? Because they had become anemic in believing God. They had made God to be something he was not. And this letter steps in. If you have a problem today with the elephant, and it is one, of God's wrath, God's judgment against the wicked, you need to deal with it if you're going to read this rightly. I like how A.W. Pink once wrote. He said, quote, an ineffably holy God. Ineffably means too great or, or extreme to be expressed or described in words. If something's ineffable, you don't have words. So the ineffability of a holy God, an ineffably holy God who has the utmost abhorrence of sin was never invented by any of Adam's descendants, end quote. You cannot invent 
God. The moment you do, you lose God because you have made yourself God. All right, that's the heavy work of lifting us out of the cultural expectation of sermon that is only dealing with God's love. Obadiah is written for the exact opposite purpose. It is to actually bring us face to face with the wrath of God. And in that is the promise. Look at verse 16. I want to show you this in the text now. It was a lot of work to get our eyes on the severity of this. Don't let that outpace what this word says to us. As you have drunk, God says to Edom, on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. So when the imagery of Obadiah now comes into view, we must understand it for what it is. The pure judgment of God spoken for a purpose. The purpose he reveals here is that Edom or Esau, along with every evil nation and every evil person, will face a day of judgment. God's promise to wicked people and nations is, verse 16, that they will drink and swallow to the last dregs the full cup of God's wrath. The word choices here imply that they have drunk their fill. Do you see that? Look again, as you have drunk. That word there implies vomiting or wallowing in vomit, being out of one's own mind. What's in view here is Edom up in the hills of their pride had a rager. They went all out in their pride of sin. God says, you did that. But where did they do this? Where does 16 say? Was it in their mountains, their cities, their fortified places, their choices, their creation? No. No, what did he say? You did this on my holy mountain. God tells the nations that they have borrowed his perfect creation and good gifts for the last time. In this moment, the common grace that sustains them in their lies about what they believe God to be is expired. Common grace has an expiration date for the wicked. The idea of his continual wrath is shown in the full and complete nature here. This is not new to the prophets. The imagery of the cup of God's wrath is famously used every, uh, elsewhere among the prophets, usually more graphic than what we have here. Let me give you the, the, the fullest treatment of it. Listen to Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel is speaking to the people of Israel about Samaria, north of them, that have rebelled. And he's saying, this is how you will be punished if you don't repent, like your sister. So listen. But listen to the language concerning the cup. You ready? Ezekiel 23, 32 through 34. Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breast, for I have spoken, declares the Lord. Ezekiel is speaking to Jerusalem for their idolatry, but you see the point. You see how this supports Obadiah? The severity of God's judgment is nothing to trifle with. And it is for those who break God's laws, who do not honor him as God, who choose to do evil to his saints. How can God be this way to Israel? 
Or in our text, how can God be this way to Edom? Well, first, they deserve it. Haven't we seen that in past weeks? They deserve it. But second, the question of asking, how can God do this, shows a fallacy. If you ask God, how can you judge wickedness with wickedness, Babylonians? How can you be good and judge these Edomites? It's an ill-advised argument. You've already started with God. The question assumes you know the mind of God. You see, we are arrogant to our core to question God's goodness and judgment of the wicked. Pink helps us here again, quote, the permanence of God's character guarantees the fulfillment of his promises. Let me read that again. The permanence of God's character guarantees the fulfillment of his promises. Are we not quick to claim that when it affirms the forgiveness of the wicked? As we should, we should, right? We're quick to understand it, put it in the center of our lives, orient our holiness around such love. We are slow, though, if we admit it, to do it here, where God promises future final judgment for the wicked. I don't know how far each person needs, but like an anemic person needs iron, each person will need a measure in their walk with God or in not knowing God to understand this. We all are privy to this side of God. We see he is holy, ineffably so. And we know it by experiencing his judgment. Obadiah has generally helped us that God's people will face it. But that is in relation to the specific context. And that's why I tell you, here's subpoint. all right? The subpoint is that there is a judgment generally for the wicked, but now it gets explained more. And we're gonna skip verse 17 for this. Look at verse 18 to continue in this. Not only are the wicked judged, but we're going to see there's a reckoning now in the text for Esau specifically. Evil Esau has a reckoning, and look at 18. It teaches us about God's judgment. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph, a flame. And the house of Esau, stubble. Look at your text. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Now, picking up a prophetic rhetorical device, Obadiah shows the reckoning of evil Esau, your sub-point today. Every act of evil done by mankind faces a reckoning in our holy God, just like this text said. Have you thought of the weight of that? That's a major statement that I just said. Ask yourself today, is it true? Can God keep such a ledger? Can he know of all of the times when he's been offended by the sinful acts of man? Yes, perfectly so. We claim promises. He knows every hair on the head in his love. Beloved, the opposite of that is he knows every deed of the wicked and the unrighteous, every thought, and his ledger is full of violence toward it. And here, there's a realization for God's people to see in Obadiah's message. He picks up the severe accountability and he uses language about fire and flame. Think about what fire and flame do when they're unchecked, when they're ungoverned, when they're released. What do they do? They extinguish completely. They consume entirely. Now we know when you burn a log, it turns into ash. It doesn't turn into nothing. So annihilating is not in view here. But the continual torment... Is that what's in view? Burn them, consume them, no survivors. 
his. A reality of God's wrath against the specific atrocities that Edom did. Now, before you jump up and say, how could God do that? Remember, this is following verses 10 through 14, where the brother of Judah, Esau, was supposed to be there. And the Lord has said that not a single survivor will be left for the house of Esau, and he's linked it to all that sin and their pride. We ask the question, is this literal? Is God literally meaning this? Here's the scary answer. Yes. Not only is it predictive of the day of the Lord that I, not, that I don't know, we admit. Jesus told us we don't even know when it will be. So I admit the mystery. But there's no mystery about what happened to the Edomites. History tells us 500 years later from this moment in AD 70, you can't even find the nation of Edom. Why? They were wiped out from the pages of history as Babylon gave way to the great Alexander, as Alexander the Great gave way to the Roman inclusion. By AD 70, the Romans are fed up enough, and there is no survivor of Edom as a nation. So God said it, and it happened. But remember, we're zoomed out, right? He says it, that it will happen. How do you know that? How do you know that in this moment, verse 18, that the past and the future is included? Okay, look at verse 18 closely. How far back God reaches in this prophecy here allows us to see that God's judgment here is not just talking about 586. Notice that in that verse, Jacob and Joseph are both mentioned. Do you see that? Remember, beloved, we're in the text, right? Look at verse 18. Learn how to study your Bible with me. In verse 18, you see Jacob and Judah. You see both, right? Israel. Well, Jacob brings to mind in their day, um, or, you know, Israel, Judah, the southern kingdom of God's people, okay? And they are the ones who are actually dealing with Edom's betrayal that took place in 586. So as Obadiah is likely prophesying around that time, right before it or in light of it, the southern portion, right, is, is this Jacob idea. But look, Joseph is mentioned. Notice, it's the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. So both of them. Well, what's happening here? When it says Joseph being mentioned, it's implying the northern kingdom. Do you know the history here? At one time, they were one nation, but they were split. David's descendant and son arrogantly took the, the northern tribes, the majority of them, save small Judah, and, and, which is a large tribe of, containing two, but you had this 10-2 split of the 12 tribes, northern and southern. 700 years before this moment, another power, the Assyrians, were used of God. Go read Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the first halves of their prophecies and the major prophets. Some of the other minor prophets speak of what? The judgment of God against these northern tribes by bringing the Assyrians in. That's already happened, and they're in exile, many of them. And so what's God doing here? The implication now is that the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, there is a remnant of people that God has kept together, and he will keep, and they will be a fire, and they will be a flame together, and they will consume. So this prophecy is reaching back to give hope, and it's also reaching forward. Now, for us to understand the judgment of the wicked... How does this apply? Well, when we deal with the reckoning that belongs to evil Esau in this text, God is predicting a future where, he, where only his wrath is known for those who practice evil and unbelief like them. In the same way that he reaches back to deal with 700 BC, so he is reaching 
and will to 70 AD where the nation itself is extinguished. But bigger still is this idea. There shall be no survivor of the house of the wicked. The Lord has spoken. You believe in this. Do you believe in a kingdom with no end? Do you believe that that kingdom was purified by the powerful flaming sword of the word of God that stands forever and made a people who are by grace there to enjoy it? Do you know what's not there? The wicked. God has said it. Now that leaves a question. How in the world can anyone endure this God? Second point, justice. Justice for wayward saints, restoration for justified Jacob. We need to understand that at this point, that through the lens of promised judgment, we learn of the wrath of God that's poured against Edom, but, but against every nation and every evildoer. That's what we've concluded. The weight of this oracle should have left you begging to hear of God's justice for his people. I mean, verse 16, you know, it, it should leave you thirsty for grace, hopefully. The, the, the warning that you will drink to the dregs. Or in verse 18 that we just said, you know, surely it leaves you, if you understand it, with the want of promised revelation. A different word. A different word than the conclusion of 18. Well, that was intentional. Because <laughs> listen, there's a, a relief along the way to those who would trust uh, God by faith, even in the midst of this explicit condemnation of evil. And that's what we turn our attention to this now. Justice for wayward saints. Look at verse 17. Right after 16, about drinking to the dregs, verse 17 thunders with this word, but. If you hear that word in the Bible, you need to pause, right? Why? Well, verses 16 and 18, we learn of this judgment. But now you see in the text a contrast, a contrast that is the promise of justice for wayward saints. Contrast is beautiful, and the descriptions are full of grace and truth. Look at verse 17 again. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Okay, first, it's, it's metaphorically geographic. It actually grabs a hold of a geography, you know, Mount Zion. Mount Zion, what the heck is that? Well, look, the most common usage of Zion biblically is to refer to the city of God, the city God has in a new age. <laughs> Zion was understood to refer to a heavenly Jerusalem, the place where the Messiah would appear at the end of time, the glorification of the messianic community, a community that believes in this promise. They believe it will take place on what? The holy mountain of Zion. This language is loaded. Look who's there, beloved. Look in verse 17. Who's there? Those who have, what? Escaped the wrath of God's judgment. That's who's there in Zion, the house of Jacob. You realize what he just said? Who escapes? The house of Jacob. Wait, what? Do you remember who Jacob was? You remember who the house of Jacob would include? Would it include liars, stealers, thieves, conniving twins, from birth on, that only understands serving their own selves? Yeah, that's Jacob. Somehow his house is there, escaping from the wrath of God. Because it's a holy place. So they didn't bring any of that into it, and somehow they're holy. God declares, promises here, that the house of Jacob will be there in his holy presence, free from his wrath, and inheriting what was promised to them, an eternal blessing. What do they have in verse 17 in Mount Zion? Their own possessions. You feel the text drawing you in to understand more? 
They will know justice in those days, even though they themselves are just as notoriously wayward as the Edomites. Before we logically ask how or why that can be, I want you to see how pregnant this promise is in the text, okay? So point A, justice for wayward saints, it gets expressed a few verses down. Look at verses 19 through 20 with me because this is the restoration for justified Jacob. This is your sub point, point two here. Listen, I'm not going to read it actually for time. You see it there. Here's why I'm not going to read it, okay? For time's sake, if I read it again, you would just notice again that there's a lot of content in verses 19 and 20. Look at, look at the words that are there, okay? It's a lot. Also notice that why it's a lot is because it's full of proper nouns. It has places and peoples. So I'll leave us men to the work of inductive Bible study and not bore you this morning because we've got to get on and do some preaching. And some of y'all are glazy-eyed, so I've got, I got to move on. But before we just dismiss this section... We may not look at it word for word today, but listen, all them proper nouns, places of people come together in this beautiful understanding of really showing what it means to be a child of promise. Let me explain it to you structurally. That'll help. You can't tell because your Bible shows it all in the same form. If you look in the ESV, you know, the reason why it gets broken into this, this kind of script, whereas like a story right beside it, like Jonah, just gets reported to us as a narrative, and then it switches at times to look this way. That's because when the Bible does that, it's trying to show you in the Hebrew that often it's poetry. Often God has been speaking in poetry. Now, what you don't get in, in your translation choice here at the ESV is that the 19 and 20 actually seems to turn from poetry and turns into prose. That may be new to you. Let me explain something. One source says this. Prose, prose is a type of literature in which the language is used in its natural and organic forms. That's prose. What you've seen prior to 19 and 20 being more prose than poetry is poetry is a type of literature that employs the aesthetic, right? You got to get those with the senses, what you touch and feel and smell and think. The aesthetic or rhythmic Right? You know poetry, and especially with the new forms that I love, right? Like rap, you know, and, and hip-hop. And what happens with, with poetry? It's like, this, it's like this keeping a rhythm, so you keep a truth in your head, right? Okay, that's poetry, rhythm, and, and aesthetics. And the language used conveys that. When prose is not concerned with rhyme or rhythm. Now get this. When you start to unpack the glories of 19 and 20, this this. Jacob, who somehow, verse 17 said, is made holy and is in the holy presence of God with all of his and stuff, 19 and 20 switches gear and says, let's just drop the poetry and let's be more factual. What are the facts? Obadiah drops most of his rhyme and rhythm to communicate clear facts. And it's not cold, it's calculated. This isn't a fiction, it's fact. Okay? There is a certain and full restoration of Jacob, justified Jacob. God's promise in verse 17 is beautifully promising justice for wayward saints. But now it's realized in the restoration of a justified Jacob. How? Well, look, on the great day when God reigns, I'm going to show you. Look at verse 19 and 20. Do you see where it says that Ephraim, Ephraim, right? You see this name? They shall possess the land of Ephraim. That's south. That's as south as you can get. Do you see Mount Esau in the text, beloved? Right? They shall possess Mount Esau. That's, that, that, that is south. Excuse me. So, yeah, yeah. Ephraim is north. My bad. Ephraim is north, the northernmost part. Okay. South is Mount Esau. That's what we're dealing with in our text. 
When it says Gilead, right, that's to the east. And when it says the Philistines, that's to the west. If you jot out this Bible verse, these, these Bible verses, and show on a map what God is saying they will possess, it is all of the promised land, and it goes to the north and the south and the east and the west, and that's his point. God's saying to Jacob, you justified Jacob, you will have it all. I promised I'll give it to you, and I'm going to keep my promise. And then verse 20 reiterated with the promise that those exiled, notice it said all of Israel, that's talking now about the northern people again, and who are, who are in exile, and those taken captive now. You see it says exiles of Jerusalem. They're both mentioned. They shall have the cities of the Negev. Now listen, guys, contextually, it's addressing the spot where all this prophecy was dealing with Edom. But God is saying, if you trust me here in this moment and you see contextually what I'm doing with, with Babylon and with your brother Edom being these wicked people, for my purposes, you will see that I'm preserving for you in this difficulty a wonderful promise that you can't imagine how far it stretches. It goes north to the northernmost part. It goes south to the southernmost entity. It goes east to the furthest, furthest place. And then it goes west to the Philistines. It can conquer people, which is interesting, right? It's not a place over there. It's people. What's the point? The restoration of the children of God, the promise that God keeps is bigger than they could ever imagine. It gives them such hope, God's full restoration. This is a reversal in the text of all of what they have lost. Let's conclude. I get to preach now. <laughs> You're like, what you been doing? Remember where we started today. We started in the confusion of promise breaking that belongs to our world. Our first point about the judgment of the wicked applies not only to Esau, but to everyone who descend from Adam spiritually. That's every person. Beloved, please hear me today. Scripture is clear. All have sinned and deserve judgment. The book, the chapter of Romans 3, all have sinned. All. None are righteous, no, not one. Our throats are like an open grave. And our best attempts at goodness, and we open our mouths to praise God, there's a pound of our flesh and without faith, it, that, that praise even would sound like and smell like death. The throat is an open grave. There is no love for God. We are born broken. We are conceived in iniquity. And the Bible says that we are condemned to face the judgment of the wicked like Edom. All have sinned. All will be judged. All will be condemned to hell for all eternity outside of the revealed grace of God. If you're here today asking, how do the promises of God apply to me? And it's the first time you're asking it. You likely need not to rush past these judgments in the text. I love you enough to tell you do not rush past the weight of God's judgment against sin. You will never understand in a moment of emotional ecstasy if that's all you can point to. You will never understand the, the seriousness of your sin against the holy God if you just heard it one time and never just stopped for a minute, asked some questions, really evaluated your life, held your good and bad up to the standard of God. If you've never done that, you will, you will, and you skip past that to what comes next, what I'm going to show you in verse 21. If you, if you don't slow down, I don't know that you'll ever get a full grasp of peace and hope that can come to the believer. 
The, the text is telling you what the rest of the Bible continues to say. If you don't repent, truly repent of sin, realize the lies of this world, that you are not just taking part in a world that's breaking promises to you, but every time you try to make a promise, you will break it if you're your own standard, right? The canon, the measuring rule of God in Obadiah, expands to the whole Bible and invites you to consider today that all of your good or bad deeds are counted as being worthy of you drinking and swallowing the full measure of God's wrath. I'm asking you to consider that, friend. If you don't believe today, consider the warning of Scripture here. It's yours. What do you believe? What do you believe? Look at the last verse. This is the good, good news. Verse 21. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. If that was you here today and you think, what are the promises of God for me? And you realize that outside of God making a way, you have no answer besides his wrath. Good, you're on the right track. You are getting your eyes where they need to be. But look what this says. This Hebrew, moi, she, ya, it's like comes together in saviors there, is this idea, delivery, deliverers, a deliverer, save yours, a way, right? The way. When it says that saviors shall go up to Mount Zion. They shall climb. They shall ascend. They shall reign from the top of Mount Zion. And they shall do it, what does it say? As kings, kings that are in a kingdom, right? And that kingdom shall belong to them? No, not theirs. Whose? The Lord's. Yahweh's, okay? That's what that word Lord, that is Yahweh. That is God who is. How do you and me fit in this future promise if we believe it to be true? Remember, Obadiah holds out that little conclusion for you, and he exists looking forward. Obadiah is a book looking forward, not backwards in its, in its finality. It's looking forward. And it's looking forward to what? Guys, a final day of judgment, which we have made abundantly clear in this sermon, is reserved for wicked people and unbelievers. Okay? He's looking forward to that, but many of the things, many of the things that he has said are illusions used by God explicitly to show us that it does not take all the way until that day to know our Lord. It does not take all the way to the final day to know our Lord. When we say our Lord, Yahweh, Yeshua, there's the same root, Joshua, Yesu, Jesus, the same roots that get translated as God show up in the form of Jesus Christ, the God-man to do what? To get your eyes in the fear of judgment to a very specific day. Obadiah has alluded to this the whole way through. I love Hebrews 1. In the, in the former days, God spoke. Did he not speak? I mean, there's been a weight in this room right now. There's been a weight on me as I prepared this sermon. And if it was only God speaking in the day of Edom, whew, I'd be a, I, I don't envy this brother. He's got a hard sermon to preach. I got an easy one to preach. Let me tell you why we got an easy one. Because in those days, God spoke by this difficulty. In these days, he speaks to us through his son. You know how Obadiah has told you about the son? Oh, these are brilliant. These are beautiful. Edomites in the day of the New Testament, when there are some descendants before 70 in the days of Jesus, there are some Edomites, at least their descendants, they're called Edomans. There's one king who's an Eduman. I've told you about him. His name was King Herod. You ever heard of King Herod? 
When God decided to put on flesh and dwell among us in the form of a virgin birth from Mary and his immaculate conception and birth came into this world, he was running to where? Where did he end up? In Jerusalem. What? Where? The city, right, of God is where he's crucified. But where does he go? He goes north to Bethlehem. Why? The city of David. And there's a guy, an Edomite, an Edomite, who did violence against the house of Jacob. You know what he did? He ordered two and under babies to be slaughtered and killed. Why? Because he hoped that he could squash out the promise of some king of kings, Jesus. But you know what God did? He perfectly preserved his one and only son as a picture of a remnant. That virgin birth happened. That little baby was innocent and they fled to Egypt and all those babies died. Not for not, for not, not for, for nothing. Oh, no, no. There's a day coming, right? Every Christian believes that every baby's blood that was spilled as evil, evil Edomite Herod poured out his hostility on the poor people of Bethlehem. When that was going on, there's a great day for judgment against that. But God was showing you, what did he do? This Edomite may raise his ugly, nasty, you know, descendant of the serpent head, but I'm keeping one. I'm keeping one for my own. And that boy, Jesus, grew up. You know what else uh, Obadiah has shown you? You know what he's shown you, that baby that grew up? Jesus who lived a perfect life outside of a great captured city of Jerusalem. Jesus grew up on the outside of Jerusalem. His ministry was in the northern kingdom of Galilee more than it was in Jerusalem. But when he set his sights on Jerusalem, when he came to the place just outside of it called Gethsemane, a garden where he and his disciples, as he's a grown, leading this uh, uh, rabbi now, this Jesus who me and you believe, you know what he did? He got into the garden of Gethsemane and Luke 22 says, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he, Jesus, withdrew from them. How far? About a stone's throw. He knelt down outside of the city of Jerusalem. He prayed, verse 42, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What is this cup? Oh, beloved, I've taught you. See verse 16 of Obadiah for your answer. Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath to the dregs on behalf of those who would trust him by faith. Those who searched when it looked like Edom would only kill, God preserved a perfect one. He raised him up. And when Jesus had the opportunity even, I mean, what does he pray? God, nevertheless, not my will. If it were possible, if there were another way to enter your presence, for these people to enter your presence, if there were another way, let it be done. But nevertheless, let your will be done. And what was God's will? As we're going to sing, feel Feel, the earth is shaking now. See, the veil is split in two. And he stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. In Gethsemane, Jesus picks up the language of Obadiah and the prophets, and he says, I will drink the full cup of God's wrath on behalf of those who I love. You see the illusion? I'm telling you, that baby saved from the violent descendants of Edom tempted but sinless, who drank the full cup of God's wrath for those who would believe in him, did something else. He rose from the grave. Look at verse 17. Mount Zion is the promised place where those who escape drinking that cup of God's wrath, we escape it to what? To paradise. To being absent from the body but present with the Lord. How do we know? Jesus rose from the grave. Listen to me. If you've come to Jesus as Hebrew 12 says, 
You have come, I'm quoting the Bible here, you have come to Mount Zion. (laughs) You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God. You've come to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. If you come to Jesus, you've come to Mount Zion. It's an already not yet reality. Does this not change, for anyone who hears it, the reality of judgment to come? It can What about Revelation 14.1, where John in the future says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Who stands on Mount Zion? Oh, beloved, hear it in Revelation. Does he swing a sword? Yeah. Is he powerful? Yeah. But who who do you, who do the ones in Revelation who see? They're finally there. They're in Mount Zion. What do they see? They see a lamb. If you're under the wrath of God today, look to Jesus, who bore the wrath for you, in your place. Repent and believe the gospel. Please, but visit with one of us about your decision to trust God by faith. Is that all? No, it's not. You're like, dude, you're killing me. Listen, the implications of this mountain of salvation are to be pursued for all your life. Okay, I mean that it is not enough to just believe in this and do nothing. It's not enough. You're like, hold on, man. Are you saying I'm not saved? No, I'm saying what James is going to tell us. Faith without works is dead. You are justified. That is true when you believe on the Lord Jesus. These beautiful future promises of Obadiah and others, are they yours? Yes. Walk in them. Walk in them. Walk in obedience. Jesus purchased on the cross all of Mount Zion's people. He did that. It is finished. Glory be to God. Don't get there and be sleeping stupid on the promises. God also purchased all the good and all the glory. Why? Because he wants us to go and right now, remember, already not yet. He wants, us, he wants you to remember this. I love how Leonard Ravenhill puts it. And I ask you, church, the question that he asked in preaching this morning. This is in closing here. Quote, could a mariner sit idle if he heard the drowning cry? Could a doctor sit in comfort and just let his patients die? Could a fireman sit idle, let men burn and give no hand? Can you sit at ease in Zion with the world around you damned? If you love and serve Christ, the answer is you cannot. You cannot sit idle on truths like this. You sit idle on truths like this, the church will die. The church you're in will die. Overprioritize the preaching of the wrath of God, come to deterministic conclusions of heresy that it's all determined, what should I do? God will have his justice, your church will die. Capitulate to the idea of ignoring the wrath of God and presenting a gospel that only says God is love and it won't be long and your church will die because you're not saved from anything. You don't even need a savior. But you find the middle ground, the sweet spot. You know what happens? You don't ignore the cries of the damned. You lament them. 
You eat different in restaurants. You shop differently at Walmart. You get haircuts differently where you're at. You talk about secondary, third tier, whatever issues, the Cowboys, football, Super Bowl. You do all that stuff with other people around you differently. For you know that all these things, all of these are being used in the grand economy of God's justice to one day absolutely judge the wicked. But for now, for now, when you're talking to a living, breathing soul, do you believe that God would have them in Zion next to you? How do you gain such a hunger for the lost? You grow your vision of Zion. And that's what we've tried to do in Obadiah. We needed the, ju- we needed the justice, we needed the judgment of God to grow our vision. When you get such a hungry vision, you look like Adoniram Judson. I'll close with this story. Adoniram Judson was a missionary to Burma, and he spent seven years among the Burmese before he ever saw one Burmese person convert to Christianity. And when he went, he wanted a spouse, a woman had, God had brought into his life, a sister of ours that we'll see in heaven one day named Anne Husseltine Judson. She married uh, Adoniram in 1812, and two weeks later, they embarked on their mission trip to India. The following year, they moved on to Burma, and then she actually died of smallpox in 1826. They had three children. One was dead uh, upon arrival in the womb, and two that did live and went on to um, talk about the blessing uh, that they had uh, with, with Adoniram and her. It was, a, it, was a, it was a marriage for missions, but it was not a, a marriage that only served missions. Wonderful story. Before they wed, before they got married, Adoniram wrote to her dad, okay? He wrote, he wrote to his future brides, he hopes, Father, and this is what he writes, quote, I have now to ask you whether you can consent to part, to part ways with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world. Let Let me interrupt here. In these days, they had to ride boats for months to get where they were going. And when they got there, there was no guarantee they'd be coming back. So just better for everyone to agree, you probably will not see your loved ones this side of eternity again. That's the context. He says, can you Consent, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. I ask you whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress. Can you consent to her degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death? Can you consent to all this? For the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you. For the sake of perishing immortal souls. For the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory? With a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved. Through her means from eternal woe and despair. Mr. Heselton agreed to it (laughs) with joy. I wonder, are we raising our kids this way? Are we thinking of our own lives this way? You think this is reckless? No, no, this is not reckless. This is careful, measured understanding of both the wrath of God against sinners and the promised love of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And when it meets a life, everything bows the knee. Husband and wife go to the ends of the world and for seven years they long to see God save and he does. And they bury children to the glory of God. How? By faith. 
Adoniram Judson's story does not shy away from pulling the heavy punches. That's for sure. It's emotional, right? It's hard to get through. My question to you really is this, though. Will you hear it and hear what we've preached? Will you consent to all of this? Is Zion real to you? Is Zion real to you today? Is Zion real? I'm going to ask you over and over again, is Zion real? Zion, is it real? Can you taste, see, understand? Do you long for it to get bigger in your mind? This is why we will sing in response today about the new Jerusalem. The highest calling any Christian reader of Obadiah must deal with is, are you willing to believe that Zion is real no matter how hard it is? And will you do everything in your power to trust that God will take care of the evil? He will finally take care of it while you are busy, busy believing his promises. This is how the Bible approaches promises. Let's deal with this issue in two ways. Let's sing. Our Savior ascended the hill of Calvary. We're going to sing about how that shields us from God's wrath. And then let's believe together that what we share in this moment is indicative of what we will share forever with him. And until then, let us be busy, busy proclaiming his goodness. Sound good? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And Lord, you know the feebleness of, of myself. You know my own weakness, God. You know my, my struggle with humility. And Lord, you know all the ways this sermon was either too long or too short, too fast or too slow. But God, we don't come here, Lord, to expecting perfect rhythm or timing. We come ex anticipating your word. And I thank you for using me in that way, God. And I pray you would. I pray you would get all the glory. And that if we have not consented, like Judson's father-in-law, if we have not consented to what you said, Jesus, that whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, or whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, or whoever would find his life in this world would lose it, but whoever would lose it for your sake and the gospels would find it. If we have not answered the question that we would pick up our cross daily and follow you, God, strengthen our faith now to obedience. May we grab every promise and may we know it, that it finds its yes and its amen in Jesus. Father, for the one who is here and they are aware of their wickedness and they feel no peace, no hope in the gospel we've preached, grant them salvation, Lord. If it's a little one that's listening, maybe even for a moment, peeked in, heard of the glories we've declared today, give parents faithful counsel. Help them to answer the questions of their children. Help them, to under, help them to see that even as a child, when you don't understand everything, God is always speaking. You will understand some things. And may they, may they have the words to share with their children about the wonderful works of God. For any adult that's here that has heard and just peeped for a moment into Zion and they don't stand upon your promises and faith there, but they have a doubt, Lord, we pray your word would consume that doubt, that this community would serve them to help them work through that doubt, and that we would be able to stand with them and hope that it is true, that they are yours. God, this comes through faith, and faith uh, through the word, the word of Christ. And so we pray that that word would dwell richly in us as we sing of it, and as we take the Lord's Supper together. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.